It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On January 13th, 1972, nine-year-old Debbie Lynn Randall was walking back from a laundromat less than a block away from her home in Cobb County, Georgia, when she was abducted, raped, and strangled to death. Debbie's tragic murder sent shockwaves throughout her community as law enforcement launched an investigation to find the monster responsible for the sickening crime. Eventually, the case went cold, And for over 50 years, the mystery remained. Who murdered an innocent little girl? But on Monday, September 18th, Cobb County District Attorney Flynn Brody Jr. brought closure to the decades-old cold case and revealed the identity of Debbie's killer. William Rose was 24 years old at the time of the crime and died by suicide two years after murdering young Debbie. District Attorney Brody joins me now to discuss the groundbreaking updates in this case and shares with me how he was able to bring answers to Cobb County all these years later. D.A. Brody, share with us what happened on January 13th, 1972. Yes, some 51 years ago, um, Debbie Lynn Randall was at the laundromat with her mom. Um, She was sent home and, and home was only like a half a block away from the laundromat. At the time she was sent home, she didn't make it as Mr. Rose abducted her, um, raped her, strangled her, and killed her, and then left her body um, somewhere at the intersection, close to the intersection of Powell's Ferry Road and Windy Hill Road, um, where she stayed missing for 16 days. Um, The community um, gathered together to search for her. There was over 4,000 members of the community searching for her but were unable to find her. She was finally found um, by some students, um, one of a returning Vietnam veteran who noticed her um, marks where she had been dragged into the woods and he followed those, those marks and found her body some 16 days a- after she was abducted on January 13th. And D.A. Brody, at the time, it, it's my understanding that detectives investigated hundreds of leads but that the case still eventually went cold with no suspect identified. Was William Rose one of those suspects? Was there an investigation into him at the time that you are aware of? There was no investigation to him at at all. He was not on their radar whatsoever. All the leads that they had received were people that um, the family knew in that area um, that might be possible suspects. Um, William Rose did not live there. He had family that lived in the same complex as the Randall family, um, but him himself, no, he didn't. And so he was never on their radar. It was not someone they knew or suspected whatsoever. Can you share how DNA testing played a part in solving this cold case over 50 years later? You first have to start with the Marietta Police Department. Um, they were meticulous in collecting the evidence from the scene of uh, where uh, Debbie Lynn was found. Her clothing, 
uh, a hair that would turn out to be um, the suspect's hair. All of those things were collected at the place that they found her. Um, you fast forward a little bit to when DNA starts becoming prominent in our society. The first incident would be October 2001, where the FBI conducted a forensic test on the suspect's hair. At the time, it did not result in any potential suspects because he did not have a CODIS profile at that time to, to be able to say that he was um, the perpetrator of the crime. Fast forward to 2015, um, technology has even increased more, and now we have a, a cloth that is used that was at the scene where the hair was found, and that cloth was sent to Sorensen Forensics uh, for an updated DNA analysis. And it, it provided a profile of an unknown male, because once again, uh, Mr. Rose was not in the system um, to be identified through his DNA. Fast forward to 2019, some further DNA testing um, was approved by the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. And this DNA, this time, um, we selected the DNA Labs International to run uh, what we call a SNP profile, which sort of takes the um, DNA and sort of assigns it to a family or uh, links it with families and open record, um, open source um, DNA profiles uh, that you find with um, Ancestry and, and, and organizations like that. And they found that this family had some commonality um, to, to our suspect. And that family was very cooperative. The Rose family was very cooperative in allowing us to get their DNA. And from that DNA swabs, we were able then to determine that the probable suspect was Mr. Rose himself, who at that time had committed suicide two years after killing um, Debbie Lynn. And that's basically how this was all linked up. Um, using the family profile, saying that it was, it was a close relative uh, to them, they knew their, their brother was, was buried and agreed to allow us to exhume him um, so we could check his DNA to see if it was a clear match. And when we did exhume him and checked his DNA, it was a match to our suspect. It was a match to the cloth on Debbie Lynn and matched to the hair. And so we had conclusive proof that he was the one that committed this crime. When Rose died by suicide two years after Debbie Lynn had been murdered by him, was there any note or journal writings or indication from him why he died by suicide or anything tying him to her or his culpability that he left behind? The only thing that we are aware of is that the family said that when he, when he killed himself, that he was afraid of going to jail. Um, but at the time, you know, he had a bad um, history of drinking um, and had been arrested for drinking. And they thought that was what it was about. They, they never imagined that it was for the killing of Debbie Lynn. Going back to the DNA match, so the, he at the time, it was not in CODIS, as you said. And then how did law enforcement know as they were creating the familial profile? Um, did they link up with him? And you mentioned the apartment building where his family lived. Was there a broader pool of suspects that had been resurrected, essentially, like I'm picturing a long list of names of just anyone that had been in the area. And then upon 
identification with the family, that's how the link was matched. Like, okay, this person, this family was indeed living in the apartment at the time. And then that's when you narrowed it down specifically, or how did, how was that connection made going from a totally unknown to a familial profile linking to the suspect? How did he become the suspect? The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Apparently, some of his family members had provided DNA samples to, I guess, to learn more about their family background. And so those families um, were part of the open source uh, records that we were able to review. Um and had a partial match with him, um, sort of, it, it's similar to being able to say two brothers are, do ancestry uh, matches, and even though they don't know each other uh, because they were separated at birth or separated sometime in the past, the DNA can show that these they have a familial relationship. Um, and in most cases, they can even tell that they have the same parents. Um, so that's that's how this happened. The Rose family had no clue this was going on until they were contacted to say that um, based on our DNA testing um, and what's what you guys have already submitted, it looks like we may have a match for a particular um, suspect. Um, they were easily to eliminate the ones who had submitted their DNA already uh, because it wasn't a complete match, but it was a familiar match um, where we could say that Basically, someone in your family did this. Can you help us figure out who it is? We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. And sir, going back a moment, you mentioned that, I believe you called it a, a criminal justice coordinator council, had approved the use of the of the seeking a DNA match or, or identifying the, the partial. Can you walk us through what that process looks like? For many of us, you know, we... we assume it's part of the budget and, you know, it would always be approved and, and someone can just order it. But is there an approval process that cold cases have to go through when evidence is referred for DNA matching or how does that work? Yeah. In, in the past, the federal government has given us plenty of grants in order to do DNA testing, um, not, not just to find criminals, but also to make sure um, that when we do our, our, our own review of, of of cases, of pro prosecuted cases, that the person that actually committed the crime was the one who committed it. Um, so just as much as we use it to find guilty people, we use it to exonerate others. Um, so the federal government has provided um, us the ability to be able to do that testing so we can make sure that justice is carried out properly. And then in this case, uh, we asked for it for, for the use of a cold case because we had pretty much narrowed down and, and were provided a DNA profile that we just needed some more information to find, figure out who it belonged to. And, and because of the cold case, our Saki grants and things like that, we were able to um, secure the funds to, to do the further testing um, with the family. Because sometimes those tests cost up, upwards of $8,000 per test. It's so hard to think of cost being a factor for achieving justice and closure, especially for these cases that have really impacted communities for so long. You know, that's an unfortunate reality um, about the current system. 
Can you speak to any other cases that your office is working on right now using that genetic technology at all? Yeah, our Saki uh, grant, which is a sexual assault kit um, initiative, we, we have solved at least three cases using DNA technology. And all of these are cold cases where at the time that the, the accidents, the incidences happened, that we just didn't have the technology to identify the perpetrator. Um, we, I think we have solved at least three in the last two years um, using this technology where basically we have some kind of um, DNA that we've been able to exert from um, the crime scene thanks to the great police work and then being able to use that to find matches um, to be able to bring people to justice. And before we move on, um, because I have one final question for you about a different case, but I I just want to have one more comment on Debbie Lynn Randall, who, you know, was abducted and murdered at the age of nine. And I really appreciated the comments you said, sir, when you said the loss of a loved one, especially one of such a tender age, is difficult to comprehend. This family has waited for decades for an answer. This information will not replace the pain of losing Debbie Lynn. And... Debbie Lynn's brother spoke at a news conference um, that you helped lead there, bringing that closure to the community. And Mr. Marvin Randall said, I wish my mother was here, meaning Debbie Lynn's mom, but I know she's in heaven now and it's finally over. And we want to say we thank you to all of you for what you've done in making this day come to pass. And I wanted to ask you, DA, what does that kind of comment and that kind of emotion from a family member, what does that mean to you? It means the world. Prosecutors, law enforcement officers, you know, we, we do this job because we we want to make sure victims are taken care of, victims are, are, are set straight. Um, losing someone at any time in our lives is, is hard. Um, but losing them when, when we don't have the answers to how why we lost them is even worse. And in such a senseless crime of a, a, a young lady, nine years old, um, who has her world ahead of her, um, to be taken away from us is, is just devastating. Um, and I said this at the news conference, you know, being a father of two girls, I would never want to have to face losing my child, especially something as heinous as what happened to Miss um, Debbie Lynn. For our community, knowing that we're going to go after these individuals, no matter how long it takes us, is important because we want to be safe. We, we want our communities to be safe. We want the world to be a place where our children can grow up and become who they want to become. Um, and for any individual to decide to take someone's life in such, such a senseless matter um, is just beyond our comprehension, beyond all reason for us to be able to accept. And, and, and so we don't accept these things, we, we continue to fight and go after these individuals to make sure that we remove them from our community um, to bring some closure to those families and, and not only to the families, but to the community as a whole, because we all feel this loss. Thank you, DA, for your service in that way and for what I understand is just an unfathomable loss for those families. To your point, you are a father but a prosecutor and you represent the people and you have committed yourself clearly to achieving justice and peace for everyone under your watch. And for that, we thank you. The final question about an additional case 
if you are in a position that you can comment on it. Currently, there's a former pastor, David Sandstra, who's being held there in Georgia, awaiting extradition to Pennsylvania. And David Sandstra, at the age of 83, he's been charged with criminal homicide, first degree murder, and other crimes in the murder of Gretchen Harrington, who was just a young girl um, in Marple Township, Pennsylvania, when she was similarly to Debbie Lynn Randall, abducted and murdered on her way walking to a vacation Bible camp. And she was found almost two months later. Can you speak to that case at all or it being in your current geographical area? The case is still under investigation. Um, and, and I try my very best as a minister of justice to make sure I give all defendants a fair trial. And, and so I, I try not to comment on any case that's, that's open um, because I don't want my words or my office's words to put us in a position where uh, we have to recuse ourselves from a particular case um, and then justice not being sought in a manner that I feel would benefit our community. Um, so any, any open cases, I, I try not to discuss those at all um, just because I want to make sure that we don't do anything that causes us not to be able to seek a full prosecution of the crimes that have been committed. Cobb County District Attorney Flynn Brody Jr., thank you. Thank you again for your service, for your commitment, and for the clearly elite caliber in which you serve in your office. We're so grateful and we're grateful to you for joining us today on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.